Hello and welcome to Teaching English with the British Council, a podcast in which we try and provide solutions to some of the key questions being asked by English teachers around the world. Teaching English with the British Council. I'm your host, Chris Salton. In each episode, we address one such question and attempt to answer it in two ways. Teaching English with the British Council. In the first part of each episode, we hear from a British Council project, programme or publication about something which is being done to address this issue. Across the 10 episodes of the series, we hear from teachers, trainers and researchers in a wide range of contexts, including India, Lebanon, Uruguay and South Africa. Teaching English with the British Council In the second part, a leading English expert and practitioner will provide practical solutions which you can immediately try out wherever you work. Each episode of Teaching English is accompanied by a full transcript and show notes. These show notes provide additional information, a glossary of key words and links to relevant websites. Teaching English with the British Council This is episode 4, How Can I Teach Refugees, Migrants and Internally Displaced People Effectively? Welcome to episode 4 of Teaching English with the British Council, in which we will try to answer the question, How can I teach refugees, migrants and internally displaced people effectively? According to the most recent data from the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, More than 82 million people worldwide have had to flee their homes because of violence, conflict, persecution or human rights violations, more than 1% of the global population. 42% of the world's forcibly displaced people are children, which obviously has huge implications for education. In this episode, we explore some of those implications, in particular with regards to language education. In a 2016 report for the British Council, Tony Capstick and Mary Delaney explored the way in which language and language learning can help vulnerable people affected by conflict and displacement. Their Language for Resilience report identified five particular areas in which this could take place, namely home languages and literacy development, building the capacity of teachers and strengthening educational systems, addressing the effects of trauma learning together and social cohesion, and access to education, training and employment. Together, these principles were described as language for resilience and have informed British Council programmes around the world, in places as diverse as Uruguay and Uganda. But the area of the world in which language for resilience has been most important in recent times is the Middle East and North Africa, And in today's field report, we hear from three programmes in that part of the world, from Egypt, Jordan and the occupied Palestinian territories. Teaching English with the British Council. My name's Harry Haynes. I'm based in Amman in Jordan and I'm the regional lead for Language for Resilience. It's a language for resilience developed as a response to the Syrian crisis and its language programs that support resilience of individuals and communities. But since that time, we've broadened the meaning out 
to help others who are not necessarily refugees, who, but who are affected by a conflict, hostility or misunderstanding. We're working at the systems level primarily, and we're working with non-formal education. So we're strengthening the, the non-formal education system by giving teachers the skills to provide quality English lessons. And the reason for that is to allow individuals, and to, to the benefit of their community as well, to progress to livelihoods for a start. We've got some really exciting work in Palestine, for example, directly linked to livelihoods in the digital economy. I'm going to be working on that in Iraq as well very soon. And pathways to higher education. So for better or worse, English is a real barrier to higher education in many countries and often displaced people or marginalized people don't have the English skills to be able to access higher education. There's also the psychological value of the programs that we run. So language classes give people the opportunity to come and share talk about their experience in a safe space and also to engage with other communities. So, for example, when we were working in Turkey on a very interesting project, the English classes were one of the few times when the Turkish community and the refugee community came together. And all of the feedback we got was that was a really positive experience for people from both cultures. And it can cause resentment in a community that's already vulnerable if all benefits seem to be going only to the new refugee community. So it's very important to build the local community in and to get their buy-in to the whole programme and to share opportunities. So to do that, English is key in that particular case. Teaching English with the British Council. Reem al English for Education Systems, Country Lead for Jordan and Iraq. I'm working with a team on a project uh, which is called Community Language Support Project. This project is a capacity development project, and it aims to improve the delivery of high-quality English language programs to marginalized and displaced youth in Jordan. And it is part of the British Council wider work in the area of language for resilience, which is a support for the importance of languages for refugees and even for the host communities. It allowed people to, uh, you know, to develop their language ability and to build the English language proficiency. This is good for them to communicate with other people easily, and it will support their work as well. Community Language Support Project is a support project. This support was in the form of training, resources, giving materials for community centers, which offered English language training in, very, in different places in Jordan. Uh, we are giving this training through strong, diverse community-based learning opportunities. So Community Language Support Project uh, supports teachers and community center managers to provide high quality, engaging and relevant English language provisions to marginalized and displaced learning. One of the things that happened last year, because this is that the second time that we are doing CLSP, we did that last uh, year and 352 participants got the training of CLSP. And one of them really gave us a great feedback about that. A Sudanese participant, he took the training and he told us that it was a constructive training and it gave him many chances to be part of the community and even to uh, develop his language proficiency. So it will be great for him to, you know, to give the trainings in a good way. 
So in Jordan, we have different refugees from different places around the world. We have refugees from Syria, from Iraq, from Yemen, from Ghana, from Sudan. So it is a chance to give them English language training since it is the way to communicate internationally. And it is a good chance for them to develop their language to open the doors around the world, not just even in Jordan. So it is like intercultural intercultural communication way for them to to have. British Council as well supports the the host community by doing training, supporting teachers as one unit together. A high-quality language learning environment will be created. This will support the country itself. This will support the host community as well, not just the teachers. My name is Ahela Ahmed. I'm the head of English for Education Systems, British Council, Egypt. So the English for Interfaith Dialogue is a natural extension to a long-existing partnership between Al-Azhar and the British Council. It started back in 2007. It involves scaling up our work with Al-Azhar and the position the British Council at the forefront of cultural relations in the area of supporting interfaith and intercultural dialogue through educational programs. This is a partnership that we are so proud of and it generally seeks building Azhari scholars' English language capacity as their leadership and the cultural understanding skills. And our vision in this program is for Azhari students, staff and scholars to be able to engage in interfaith dialogue and intercultural exchange with people from different cultures nationally and overseas through the medium of English. And just to give you a bit of background, Al-Azhar is the largest Sunni learning entity in the Muslim world, and it's regarded worldwide as the main Muslim advocate of moderate and modernist Islam as opposed to other extreme Muslim ideologies. This particular program, the English for Interfaith Dialogue, is for ambitious Azhari students and scholars who seek broadening their views of the world and getting a better understanding of the other. This actually constitutes the overall goal of the project, which is to empower Azhari students, staff and scholars with the relevant English skills to enable them to engage in interfaith dialogue and intercultural exchange opportunities. This was so to help them build bridges towards understanding other faiths and religions, but also be in a better position to tell the other about tolerant Islam. This was also regarded by Al-Azhar itself as a pressing need to position Al-Azhar as the moderate Muslim entity and to leverage the career prospects of future Azhari imams and the scholars who are pursuing jobs or academic studies overseas in countries like the UK. This is all eventually contributing to the achievement of Al-Azhar grand ambitions. My name is Rana Badwin, and I'm the English Projects Manager in Palestine. In Palestine is a British Council project that aims to improve the English language skills and soft skills of Palestinian youth so that they're better able to access opportunities in the digital economy. And the idea and inspiration for this project really came through one of our partners, Gaza Sky Geeks, because They've done a lot of work helping unemployed graduates um, who have a lot of talent and a lot of skill to become 
digital freelancers and coders and find those opportunities. This project um, was inspired by that and is aiming to do work with partners like Gaza Sky Geeks um, to help those youths find those opportunities in the digital economy. Well, a lot of youth have gone through university, you know, they've done their 12 years of school, gone to university, gotten a bachelor's degree, maybe even a master's, but they still can't find a job. Part of that is because of just the context and the economy here and just very limited opportunities. And for a lot of people, the only way they can find a job is by looking outwards. For a lot of people, um, they think a program like this or those improved language skills, they could be the key that unlocks the door. And that bit of hope goes a long way. For refugees, learning English or learning the local language can be that first step in getting back to normal. It's how they're able to, to get to know the new environment that they're living in. Um, being able to read and understand the, the signs um, that they see as they're walking down the street or those small interactions that they have with somebody in a supermarket or a clothing shop with a, a taxi driver or a bus driver. Those small interactions that they have in English can be the highlight of their day. English can do so much for them in their new environment. And it it goes beyond the work that we do in our projects, really. It really does change their life. The one thing with language, honestly, I mean, for a lot of refugees, they come when they're in a new, whatever new society they're living in, um, it's a new society, but they're bringing, they're still carrying all that trauma that they um, faced before. And if they're not able to communicate with people about it and express themselves in, in English or, or the local language, it can be really difficult for them to move past it. So the language not only can help them to adapt to their new society, and to a new way of life, but it can also help them to kind of to process and come to terms with what they went through by giving them the means to talk about it with others, which can be really important. For me, language for resilience is about pathways. It's adaptive and it's about hope. For me, language for resilience is all about diversity, intercultural and high quality. So language for resilience for me is opportunities, ambitions, and persistence. For me, language for resilience is about hope, opportunity, and empowerment. You can find out more about the British Council's Language for Resilience programmes in the show notes or at www britishcouncil.org slash language hyphen resilience hyphen hub teaching english with the british council so in the second part of this episode we talked to brian lally brian has a broad range of educational experience including teaching leadership teacher and head teacher training safeguarding and child protection and program management over the last few years he has been working on a range of projects encompassing non-formal schooling and higher education provision for Syrian refugees in the Middle East, 
and is currently nearing completion of his PhD on educational experiences of Syrian refugees in Lebanon, Voices from the Margins. Brian, welcome to Teaching English. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be with you. So perhaps I could begin, Brian, by asking for your reflections on the field report, which we've just heard, and how this compares to your own experiences working with refugees, migrants and IDPs. I thought it was really interesting getting those little snapshots from across the region. One thing that did strike me from the off, though, just the very word resilience and in language context is interesting. Resilience, we've been hearing a lot of in the refugee context. And I've also been starting to question the use of that word itself, because I, I wonder sometimes, is that displacing a certain amount of responsibility for very difficult conditions. For example, we're already starting to hear some hints of almost refugee blaming that their circumstances are challenging and if they're not succeeding, well, maybe it's because they're not resilient enough. And I just wonder about the actual use of that word itself. Are we basically saying that we're expecting people to put up with things that they should not be putting up with? My concern is really that the terminology might actually displace some of the responsibility and I think that's difficult. I think it's one thing, absolutely, we should be acknowledging the realities of the difficulties that people are facing. But rather than just giving them skills to kind of cope with things that they really shouldn't be coping with, does resilience kind of lend itself more to a narrative of, well, let's just find a way to cope rather than actually solve the underlying problems? And what would you describe it as, Brian, if you could, from your own experience working with refugees in the region, where do you see the value of, of language learning and education? How, how, instead of, say, language for resilience, what term would, would you use? I would pick out some of the themes that actually that your contributors to the field report picked out on. And the one that really stood out was how many people kept circling back to hope, not just education in emergencies, but language education and foreign language and English in particular, I think is so much linked to people's ability to be connected not just to their immediate circumstances, but to the broader outside world. Because whether we like it or not, English is a lingua franca now, not just in terms of employment, but in terms of international communication, whether it's through social media or being plugged into news networks, or even how you navigate some of the international systems as a migrant or as a refugee. And I think the idea of teaching people the communicative skills, in most cases in terms of English, to allow them to be not just barely competent, but to confidently navigate that space, that is inherently a hopeful thing to do. It's also quite aspirational. For many of the families that I've been working with, there is no intergenerational tradition of speaking English or even attempting to learn English or even actually perceiving a value in English. There is a question of novelty, of ambition, of striving for something new and different and something better that can be tied up with English if it's taught well. What would you say to a teacher working in those conditions? How can they create hope in a situation which can often feel pretty hopeless. As we know, teachers have so much to do as it is. We're putting a lot of pressure on them as well if we we're asking them to create that hope for, for young children in, in refugee scenarios. I think part of this is just the very existence of education in these contexts is itself a statement of hope. Some of the, the places where learning happens, just the fact that they're even in existence at all, is a massive statement of commitment, of hope, of ambition, of not being forgotten, and of not wanting to be left behind. So for teachers who 
so often get vexed by notions of quality of what's being delivered and what's possible. I think sometimes it's good just to take a step back and say, hang on a second, the very fact that you are turning up for work and delivering anything to these children in these spaces is a very, very big statement in itself. You know, learning centers, schools, whatever you want to call them, these are totems of, of ambition. These are totems of optimism. These are totems of hope in very, very difficult contexts. And I think if we're only stressing about the nature of the curriculum or, you know, what the attendance rate was or how many children passed some artificial random test in maths, I think we're missing possibly the much more important, broader point about the value of the very existence of these institutions. And of course, these institutions only matter because of who is in there. And for the people running these teachers, the fact that they are showing up is just such a massive symbol to the children that they matter, that they have a future, that things are possible, that they've not been completely abandoned, in spite of what so many other, other things in their lives may tell them to the contrary. You know, these children do have worth. And that's before you even open your mouth as a teacher, never mind to the real exciting things that teachers can do in, in their teaching spaces, just showing up just really counts. And how can teachers protect themselves in those situations? Because, you know, they are dealing with these students who have a range of issues. They may be there by themselves. They may have lost family members. They have migrated to those areas. They may have little experience of education. So th that may translate into poor behavior in the classroom, all these sorts of things. When the teachers themselves are also refugees and are dealing with their own trauma, and then they are taking on the trauma of others vicariously as well. How can teachers protect themselves in those situations so that they can both be a, the kind of person they want to be, but also provide that support to the students that they teach? My advice there would be just focus on what you can do because that's the only way that you can't be overwhelmed by the huge challenges, both in scale and scope, of what's in front of you. Do what you do really well. Don't worry about what you cannot do, because that is just going to lead to anxiety and not actually achieve anything for those that you, you want to be serving. In terms of actual sort of specific classroom practices, from what you've said, you're saying it's somewhere in between a sort of very exam or grammar focused approach to learning language. And then on the other extreme, there's sort of the smothering with love that we're perhaps trying to find a, a middle way through that. What would be some of the practical suggestions or recommendations you could make to teachers working with these groups about what they could do in the space of their own classrooms? Firstly, I would say make them safe spaces. So the fact that these schools exist is brilliant, but the teacher's role is to capitalize on that, that totemic aspiration, that totemic hopefulness of the existence of the school and make what goes on in those places appropriate for that. So this means that children need to be seen and heard in their teaching spaces. What teachers need to do is meet these kids where they're at in terms of their learning and very pertinently in terms of their behaviors for learning. We can't build education in emergency systems for children where those children are not compliant in ways that teachers might be hoping for or expecting, where children are not ready for learning, they're not ready for the routine of being in school or the routine of being in a classroom. Teachers have to acknowledge this. 
The second dimension to this I would raise, because I've, I've heard this an awful lot, teachers will say very regularly, oh, I can't teach this, they're just too traumatized, or they, they've got no attention, they've got ADHD, they've got lots of unqualified people diagnosing children, all of a sudden kind of putting labels on children to explain certain behaviors. As an observer sitting at the back of the class, my conclusion is quite different. It, often I'm seeing children responding normally to bad teaching. For example, teachers complaining that a classroom of five-year-olds all sitting absolutely jam-packed into rigid desks. And why are they not sitting in silence, listening to me talk at them for 50 minutes? Why are they fidgeting and getting restless? Well, because they're five-year-old children and they're not built to sit and listen. And why are we even thinking this is a good idea in the first place? This is not a diagnosable trauma situation necessarily. This can very often be children responding normally to bad quality teaching. What teachers should actually be doing. I think it's very simple, actually. You make it a safe space where kids are seen and heard. You have a culture where, where it's not just okay to be wrong and to make mistakes, but actually to inculcate an environment in which getting something wrong is a superpower. It's how we learn together. It's breaking this stereotype of the teacher as somehow the arbiter of the, the perfect answer. Uh, that actually you've got an explorative approach to learning, which is truly child-centered, which is absolutely meeting them where they're at, which is acknowledging the reality of, of the challenges of their existence, but also the opportunities of their existence to really push them. But boil it down to what are the children learning and how do you know? That's it. Within that, there is a space for materials and resource development, which is relevant and meaningful. You know, some of the materials are just so divorced from the reality of kids' lives as refugees in this region. There's one whole unit of work I saw in a school which was focused on, in the Victorian times, there was a sail ship that went from London to India and about yeah. trade and commerce. And why? Yeah, that's quite, that's quite a, sort of, a sort of an amusing story. But in my own experience as well, it can actually be a lot more damaging because it can, for example, there's a unit on my house or my family. Right. Well, these kids may be coming from places where they've lost right. their house and they've lost right. their family. Right. I mean, the other example I was going to give was, um, the, the, and this is a very common thing you, we, we find in this language context, is to talk about things like birthday parties. And, and actually some of the communities with which I've been working um, well, there is no tradition of celebrating birthdays, never mind the resources to do it. It's just not been a cultural feature in the landscape of these families. So all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about beautifully illustrated images of balloons and presents and birthday cake and lots of kids around and maybe going to the park or going swimming or things to celebrate a birthday. And it's so divorced from the realities of, of kids' lives. It's not just irrelevant, it's damaging because you're presenting this idealized version of a life which these kids have been denied yeah. so you know you're coming to school and you're being presented with this picture of look what you could have won yeah but because of the circumstances the accident of the circumstances of your birth or the political and social factors which have led to being a refugee or, or a migrant in this conflict that's just not possible sorry kids but we're going to have to study these privileged kids that have these things that you don't and can't have it can reinforce that trauma which they're already feeling it reinforces trauma it emphasizes marginalization it further displaces children right at the point at which we're trying to include them so it's 
again a message for classroom teachers is choose the materials carefully or if you're not able to do that certainly with older or older learners you can actually critically evaluate those materials and sort of uh, right. sort of critically discourse on that right and and this is also where we need dialogue with the school leaders so if the school leaders understand the issues around context of course that's the starting point for for trying to change things if the school leaders understand those basic questions what are the children learning how do you know well of course that's the way into discussing not just different materials, but different approaches to, as you say, puppetry or to learning through play. This is how the community makes the education for the community relevant. One final question, Brian. I asked our other contributors to share three words for how they saw language for resilience. Maybe I could just ask you more broadly to give three words that sum up how you think and why you think language learning is important in the context that you work in. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to use the word resilience. <laughs> I am going to echo the word hope, because I think schools are, education in this space is about hope. It's about empowerment. It's about possibility. Brian, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. In my own experience of working with refugees and migrants, you can sometimes feel overwhelmed by some of the stories you hear and the journeys which people share with you. What you also see is how important language is for people who have had to leave their home through no fault of their own. As educators, we can help these learners develop their language skills so that they have the opportunity to lead full, meaningful lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teaching English with the British Council. We hope you enjoyed it. Please do like, subscribe and review. And please remember to download the show notes and transcript. Join us next time for episode 5, where we will try to answer the question, how can I teach online effectively? Until then, goodbye. Teaching English with the British Council.